Welcome to Canary and Coal Mine, your early warning system for all things absolutely crazy and insane that are being tried out here in Seattle and are on their way to a city that you live in. I'm your host, Ari Hoffman. So, I got kind of complacent because the chop just provided stuff every single day, but it was great timing because so much other stuff has turned up in the meantime because you can always count on Seattle to provide more stupidity for you to report on. On Monday, yesterday, in the midst of an economic downturn, the Seattle City Council passed a tax on salaries of top earners in an effort to fulfill a multi-year promise of targeting big business. Anybody know how this is going to end? Let's just see. If we tax businesses that are already having issues due to coronavirus, how do you think this is going to end? Okay, we'll come back to that. The ordinance established a tiered system of taxation on Seattle companies with annual payroll expenses of $7 million or more. Employers in the first tier will be taxed 0.07, I'm sorry, 0.7% of annual salaries between 150000 and almost $400,000, and 1.7% of annual salaries exceeding $400,000. According to the council, the company would pay the tax, not the employee. There is a separate level for companies with annual payroll expenses of more than $1 billion per year. Employers in this tier will be taxed 1.4% of annual salaries between $150,000 and $400,000 and 2.4% of annual salaries exceeding $400,000. According to the council staff, stock grants are included in the salary thresholds, but stock options are not. Let's do a little math here for a second. The cheapest house in my neighborhood of Seward, Seward Park, now granted, you don't have to live in Seward Park, but the cheapest house in my neighborhood is going for around $650,000. If you factor in your mortgage and your utilities and your property taxes and your other taxes, plus everything else you get hit with from car tabs and tuition and daycare and childcare and everything else, this place is unaffordable. If you're not making $150,000, or have dual incomes with each person making $100,000. So really, you're talking about taxing a lot, a lot of people. And now with coronavirus, why would anybody choose to come here? We got families moving out of town left and right because now they can work from anywhere and they don't have to be in this tech hub. Crazy stuff. You need to think about this for a second also is that if a company's goal is to make money and they're a startup or they're some new company, they would say, why the hell would I go to Seattle when I want to be successful and I want to be a millionaire down the road. Why establish myself in Seattle when they're just going to come and tax me for my success later? They're going to choose to go somewhere else. This second level was most likely designed for Amazon as members of the Seattle City Council, such as Marxist Councilmember Kashama Sawant and Socialist Councilmember Tammy Morales, have long demonized the tech giant. Sawant most recently had tax Amazon booths set up in the Capitol Hill occupied protest, the CHOP, and has used every public speaking opportunity during Black Lives Matter protests to promote the tax. So she wasn't promoting Black Lives Matter. She was always talking about the tax. In 2018, the council unanimously passed the $250 per employee head tax directly on Seattle businesses. A grassroots effort. Yes, it was a grassroots effort. I was part of it, I know. Assisted by local businesses, collected thousands of signatures in just a few weeks, and then were joined by the paid signature gatherers. I think they got 30,000 signatures even before the paid signature gatherers got involved and all they needed was 40. <sighs> they were able to do that in just a few weeks to get it on the November ballot. Facing growing public pressure, including an Amazon construction stoppage and pressure from unions, the council repealed the tax a month later. Unions 
are beyond dumb to me right now because they're actually supporting this tax, the ones who opposed it beforehand. Do you think companies are going to continue building in downtown Seattle? Amazon's already picking up and going across to Bellevue. Why do you guys, why are you jeopardizing your own jobs? I don't understand this. Unions should all be voting for the more conservative philosophy because conservative philosophy makes them money. Why are they always backing the Democrats? Because it's about money and power. Because they know they can make more union dues off people because they'll have more sway in the political system. What they don't realize is that they could have their cake and eat it too if they just switch sides. I don't understand the thinking behind a union. What is the upside to your members always getting taxed, to losing jobs, to losing contracts, and them going elsewhere? I really just don't understand it. I don't get it at all. If somebody could explain it to me, please do, because it makes no sense to me whatsoever. Councilmember Teresa Mosqueda dubbed the new ordinance Jumpstart Seattle and claims it will raise $200 million a year which in 2020 would be directed to COVID-19 relief measures, including rental and business cash assistance programs, housing, and food security. That means homelessness, by the way, the problem they created. Uh, they didn't create homelessness. They created the problem here in Seattle where we have thousands and thousands and thousands of homeless people here because their policies enable them to just be on the streets. In 2021, funds will be spent on tax administration, prevent COVID-related budget cuts to city services. Oh, wait a second. So now we have to cut because you guys shut down the city and you guys can't figure out how to kill your own pet project. So now we have to fund it. That's what's going to happen. You're going to tax these companies in order to fund it. We'll be directed to services and programs and now serve low income households and small businesses. So you're going to tax the businesses to pay for other businesses. That's called wealth redistribution. In 2022, funds would be spent on Green New Deal investments. Oh, yes, that always works out well because we know that green technology is really thriving right now. More tax administration, housing and services for low-income families, community-led development projects, local business, and tourism. N who wants to come here with all the stuff going on on the streets right now? You just had the whole thing with the chop. You guys enabled that. So once again, you are taxing us, you are taxing companies, in order to pay for your bad decisions, bad policies that have ruined this city. People say Seattle is dying. Yeah, it is. But it's dying through suicide. We did this to ourselves. We elected these people. We tried to warn you. We tried to stop you from doing this. People aren't going to want to come here anymore. People are going to say, why do I need so, to work so hard when all my money is going to be taken by the government? Why do they need to do that? Why continue killing yourself when there are other places that are cheaper? The tax is more likely to jumpstart Seattle's neighboring city of Bellevue which has already been nicknamed Amazon's HQ2 by many because of the amount of jobs that have moved there. The tax could apply to over 800 businesses, including chains and businesses already reeling from COVID-related shutdowns, especially businesses that are reliant on Amazon and other big Seattle-based companies. Think about all the restaurants downtown, hairdressers, it's dry cleaners, everything downtown in Lake Union that isn't operating right now because their entire clientele isn't working right now. Their entire clientele from Amazon, they're not working right now. What are they going to do? The Seattle Metropolitan Chamber of Commerce, the Downtown Seattle Association, and many other neighborhood businesses oppose the tax. Well, great. Guess what, guys? You missed your chance because you didn't endorse candidates that may have had a chance of making an impact on this. Instead, you went with the most middle-of-the-road, white, milk-toast people you could possibly find and assumed that would be the way out of this. You guys dug your own grave on this. Sorry, you did. And Amazon, I love Amazon. I think it's a great company. I think it's done great things for the city. But given that the mistakes they made during the 2019 Seattle City Council race, and given the fact that Amazon didn't actually want to submit the signatures that thousands of people worked their tails off to collect for them so that they wouldn't leave Seattle, I'm tired. I'm tired. Why would I want to keep fighting for them?
really, why would I want to keep fighting for them? At this point, they're on their own. Because I know a lot of other people who worked their butts off to get those signatures last time around aren't going to do it this time. Yeah, we're tired. We don't want to do this anymore. We tried. We warned you. We told you what was coming. And then they went along with all this. So think about it this way. Amazon was part of, was one of the sponsors beyond the people who were fighting against the repeal of the car tabs. They didn't want the $30 car tabs because they figured the mass transit and stuff would help out their employees. So they stabbed us all in the back with that one. Instead, Amazon could have said, here's a check, if they really cared that much about it, to sound transit, but they didn't. And now, meanwhile, with coronavirus, lots of people are moving out of the cities. People don't want anything to do with the cities. They want to be away from the cities. And then you put the violence on top of that, they don't want to be in the cities anymore. So this whole urban density that's being pushed by urbanists, that's gone, out the window. Mass transit, gone. What do we need anything of that for? People are leaving cities in droves. I saw a report today, 500,000 people moved out of New York City. Now, it doesn't seem like a lot. When you think about the numbers of New York City, it's a huge amount of people. I know a bunch of them who said, we're out of here, we're not doing this anymore. And the number's going to continue to grow as New York goes farther and farther down the toilet. And the same thing's happening in Seattle. People are bailing on their leases in Capitol Hill. They want out of there. They're bailing on their leases elsewhere. They just want to be out and gone. They are selling their houses. I'm looking into how much of Seattle real estate is on the market. Minneapolis real estate, 18% of the real estate went on the market after the riots. 18% of all real estate in Minneapolis. That is a huge, huge number. People are going to continue leaving these major metropolitan areas because they've had enough. They've had enough. And you know what that means? It's going to be less people with common sense voting, which means these people are going to be more enabled and more one-party rule and more cities are going to be destroyed. Will they ever wake up? You got me. I really just don't know. The tax may be the largest new tax ever passed without voter approval and could apply to as many as 78,000 salaries. With more people working remotely due to coronavirus shutdowns, there is concern that affected Seattle businesses and residents will move elsewhere to avoid the tax and Seattle's already staggering and ever-increasing cost of living and operating. Seattle's facing an estimated $300 million budget shortfall due to COVID-related shutdowns affecting revenue and poor rainy day planning. They didn't have a rainy day fund, really. They haven't been putting money away, even though they've had record revenue. They haven't been putting the money away. They've been spending it and spending it and spending it like a kid who just got his parents' credit card and no restrictions. Cuts and furloughs have not been finalized by the city, aside from council members and the mayor, Jenny Durkin, vowing to cut $20 million or more from the Seattle Police Department budget. All the council members who voted for the ordinance were present and supportive of recent protests and riots in downtown Seattle. Some, including Mosqueda, has ties to Antifa and have advocated for the demonstrators and participants in the chops not to be prosecuted. So now they're creating the crime. Andrew Lewis, let's remember him. Andrew Lewis, one of the other city city council members who voted for this thing. This is the guy who was releasing criminals when he was part of the DA's office and is now going to tell us how, he's go how we're going to be safer. Please explain to me how that's going to happen. The ordinance could be vetoed by the mayor, but the veto could be overridden by six votes of the council. Given that the ordinance passed seven to two, it is unlikely the measure is veto-proof. It is more likely that the ordinance will face legal opposition and or a ballot referendum. I don't even know how it's constitutional. But this is coming to your city if it hasn't already. These guys are going to have record revenue shortfalls, and they're going to come after you in order to fix it. Think about it this way. Once all these companies leave town, and once these high earners are no longer here, and they're not getting the revenue they thought they were going to get from these people, who do you think they're going to target next? Because they don't know how to cut. They don't know how to do that. They're going to come for you next. Don't say I didn't warn you. Got a whole lot more coming up on Canary in a Coal Mine after a brief word from our sponsor. 
Welcome back to Canary in a Coal Mine. I'm joined today by Amber Kraybach, who is running to represent you in Washington State. Amber, can you tell me about the area and district that, or sorry, the area that your district encompasses? Uh, hi, Ari. Thank you so much for having me. Um, the So I'm running in the 45th district um, for state representative, and it covers, so all of Duval, um, probably half of Redmond, half of Woodenville, Sammamish, a little bit of Sammamish, I think four houses in Kirkland or in uh, Carnation, and then um, a portion of Kirkland as well. Sounds like the area I spent all last weekend in delivering bounce houses. Uh, that's a lot of driving out there. So with coronavirus going on and things like that, are you able to effectively doorbell or do you find it's more practical to do online, you know, campaigning and things of that nature? That is a, a really good question. Um, I think that we, we've we kind of assumed that doorbelling was off limits um, this uh, for the last couple months. And so people have been really tentative in general. Uh, candidates have been really tentative in general about going out and trying it. Um, I went out and I doorbelled on this last Sunday. And it was wonderful. It was great to go out and meet people. Uh, some people were more uh, hesitant and um, I, we didn't have anybody that didn't accept our, uh, our, um, our visit in that sense. And uh, we didn't have anybody who didn't take the literature that we were, that we were handing out. Um, but in general, it seems like uh, I think a lot of us kind of miss being able to talk to people directly. Um, and it's, you know, we still can't really shake hands or anything, but it's great to be able to see a friendly face in person and have those conversations more directly. You should go around with quarantinis offering them to people. I think they'd appreciate that. Well, I, I think we all would, yes. <laughs> so you ran for office before, and you're one of the unique ones that you said, I'm going back for seconds, and after your campaign was over, you got more active on social media. So tell me, what, what makes a person say, you know what, I really want to go through this all over again? <laughs> um, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I, I really am passionate about seeing justice done. I'm concerned about what's happening in our area. Um, I have a lot of optimism that things can change um, and, and that they will if we get out there and if we do what we need to do, if we uh, if we do the job that, that the people of Washington State need us to do, we can, I, I really believe that we can change this, that we, um, you know, there are, some, there are some big changes that need to happen, um, but I think they can happen um, even if it's in a small capacity at first, even if it's uh, a little bit at a time, a little bit of deregulation or, um, you know, step-by-step step through that process. I think we can. I think we can do this, and 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 seeing that vision of look, this we can. Washington State is a gem. Um, this area, the Pacific Northwest, is has the potential uh, to to lead the country in so many ways. Uh, we're innovative. Um, it's gorgeous out here, especially in the summer in these in these uh, warmer and sunnier months, um, and and we can bring in people um, from all over the world to help us um, consider uh, the best way to, to further um, humanity and society, the best way to reach people, the best way to help people. 
uh, I think we have a we have a treasure here, and and I'd like to see that. I think there was a time that we really were thriving, um, and I'd like to see that come back. I'd like to see that kind of reborn in our area. Um, and I think there are a lot of people that are are desperate for that. I think that Washington residents see that as well. I think they know that it's possible, and they really are hungry for it now. Um, and, and that's what we need. That's how it happens. People need to, um, need to know that, or need to believe that it's possible and they, and they need to, uh, be motivated to act on that belief so that we can get it done. So what's done is done essentially with everything that's happened so far. And let's say governor Inslee gets reelected in that worst case scenario and you're stuck and you get elected, which is a good thing. And you're in now in the state house. What can be done by the state house to roll back what the governor is doing, or to prevent what the governor is doing? What positive actions can you guys take to fix what's going on? Well, you know, some of it depends on you know whether we have um, a majority in the house or the senate as well, so that we can uh, really have the have the ability to push through, um, or even have uh, the bills that we are that are priority for us um, heard on the floor. Um, I'd love to see, I think at, at, at the very least, I'd love to see the, the House and the Senate both closer to 50-50 uh, so that we have more balanced discussion. Uh, the biggest thing that, that I think hinders us at this point is that we really have strong, you know, one-sided, one-party uh, decisions going on or decision making happening so that the the the, the voice of the people um, really isn't represented well and you know we see that with the with the sex ed bill the comprehensive sex ed mandate that that was pushed through I mean that that by the the office of superintendent of public instruction um, survey that they did the people of Washington state um, solidly said, no, I think almost 60% said, look, this is not something that we want mandated in our schools um, across the state. And the, the legislature didn't need to listen. They, they were um, defiant and pushed that through anyway. And, and I'd like to see, at the very least, I'd like to see our House and Senate come back to um, closer to a 50-50. I'd love to have at least one chamber uh, where we have a majority so that we can find that balance again so that there is a check and balance or a system of checks and balances um, that's functional and active um, so that we have the ability to make sure that um, that the voices of the people of Washington State are heard, the diverse voices, not just, not just what Seattle wants to do, um, but uh, that, that we hear everything. I think it's really important to have that back and forth so that that concept of iron sharpening iron, where you, you have an idea and you think it's really good, um, but then you realize because someone else has a different perspective that um, that you forgot something or that you you hadn't thought of the uh, the situation from a different perspective and a different point of view, um, and so then what what comes out of that is better. It's more refined. It's it's uh, closer to perfect, and it really and truly encompasses or has the ability to encompass the the voices of all the people um, that are involved so that you're truly represented. I think that's my biggest struggle right now. I feel that, you know, even with the 
maybe dissenting voices that we have in the House right now. The people of Washington State um, overall, is, in general, don't, um, don't, I don't feel that they're represented well. Um, not balanced, not, um, we're just, we're more diverse than that. We're more diverse than that. And it really feels like uh, we're being strong-armed by Seattle um, ideology, Seattle politics. And, and Seattle should be, um, they should have the, the liberty to, to set their policy the way that they want it and their ordinances the way that they want it um, according to their community. That's fine. Um, but that shouldn't be pushed on the rest of the state. And, and too much of that is happening. Well, what you're talking about with compromise and two parties working together, we've seen what one party rule has done to Seattle. It's destroyed it. Seattle is dying through suicide. Seattle's not dying through outside factors. We're doing this to ourselves, and it's unfortunate. Amber, thank you so much for joining us. If people want to volunteer for your campaign, donate to your campaign, be part of your campaign, support your campaign like I do, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, I, I would love their support. I welcome it. I I'm so grateful for it, especially in this time while things are, are rough and um, uh, tense. I really appreciate it. The best thing they can do is go to my website, uh, AK4, the number four, WA.org. Um, and the information there to connect with me is available. Um, and I would say, you know, in this time, as much as anything else, making sure that you are um, communicating on social media as much as you can, sharing the, the information, sharing the truth, getting it out there, um, sharing the, the uh, podcast from you, Ari, and from uh, Todd Herman and all the people that are really pushing and working hard to make sure that that truth is heard and that those, um, the narratives that are out there that are deceitful or, or deceiving um, are, are countered where they need to be so that that information can get um, to, can get to the people so that people are well informed. That's the best thing that we can have is an informed and an independent electorate. That's what would make me happiest of all. So get out there, speak up, uh, push out, push back, and um, support me at ak4wa.org. Words to live by. Amber Craybaugh, thanks so much for being with us. We'll be back after a brief word from our sponsor. Welcome back to Canary and Coal Mine. Remember that if you like the podcast, to subscribe, rate, share the podcast. Remember, if you hate the podcast, to subscribe, rate, and share so you can hear every controversial thing I say. Because those people who hate the podcast are doing a bang-up job. Those people who love the podcast, you guys are awesome. Thank you so much for being such good fans, for sending me all the stuff you do. A lot of this I couldn't do without you. So thank you so much for sending me the source material you do. Those of you who hate the podcast, you're doing a bang-up job. I love whenever you guys share this thing because it gets me more shares, more likes, and more views. So keep up the great work. $1.2 million bail set for the driver who allegedly killed a protester on I-5. Now let's just back up a second. If you're protesting on a freeway, a highway, during rush hour, what do you think's going to happen? Now, that's no excuse. Nobody should be killed because of that. But at the same time, why did we allow this? Washington State Patrol allowed this. Seattle allowed this. The governor allowed this. The mayor allowed this. What kind of stupid insanity is this? You have the right to peacefully protest, not to riot, not to loot, not to take over sections of the city, not to shut down highways. Sorry, it says it right there in the Constitution. Peacefully protest. In his first court appearance since the incident, Dawid Dawit Khalit, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, is being held on $1.2 million bail for allegedly being the driver who killed a protester on I-5 and injured another after a judge found probable cause to hold Khalit on an investigation of vehicular assault. 
According to court documents, troopers described Khalid as reserved and sullen when they arrested him, and that he asked if the injured protesters were doing okay. Troopers also said he did not have any drugs or alcohol in his system at the time of the crash after conducting a field sobriety test. Washington State Patrol Captain Ron Meade told Cairo 7 News very candidly, we don't know at this point in the investigation what the motive was, what the reasoning was. Now, here's something interesting. If you know that section of highway and the area ways they were closing this down, he had to work to get onto the highway. He went the wrong way on an off-ramp to get back onto the highway going this direction, and then he comes flying in. Check out the video here. I'm so glad the video wasn't running. Good God Almighty. God Almighty. 911. Good God Almighty. Oh my God. Oh my God. Everybody's watching right now. A car came through and just hit the protesters on I-5. Now, if you saw that video, you could have braked beforehand. I don't know if he was aiming for these guys. We don't know what the motive was. I don't want to speculate. But that's pretty awful, especially if you don't have drugs or alcohol in your system. That's graphic. Graphic. Cairo 7 also discovered that Khalid has faced charges of assault, trespassing, and malicious mischief in the past. However, each charge was eventually dismissed. Following the incident on Saturday night, as has become routine, other protesters and advocates were quick to lay the blame on white supremacists for the tragedy, with no evidence to back up the claim. This was all over the internet. White supremacists targeted the march. It's all white supremacists. Mind you, it's mostly white people marching on the highway, but whatever, we don't need to talk about that. Mainstream media outlets omitted mention or pictures of the driver and only posted pictures of his vehicle, a new model white Jaguar. Why do you think that was? Think maybe it was intentional? Because they say, oh, if people see it's a white Jaguar, they assume it's a white guy who's driving the thing. In fact, except the other problem is, is that Khalid is a black guy. So it wasn't a racial thing for all we know. Two weeks ago, Seattle City Council Member Kashama Sawant parroted a false claim of a right-wing attack being responsible for the shootings in the Capitol Hill-occupied territory, even though representatives of the shop attributed to gang violence. Leading up to the tragedy Saturday night, Black Lives Matter protesters have been marching across I-5 and stopping traffic for 19 consecutive evenings. Washington State Patrol just days before allowed the protest and even announced closing I-5 to protect the protesters while delaying commuters. So those of us just obeying the law, minding our own business, get stuck in traffic while these Looney Tunes are allowed to walk across a highway and protest in the middle of a highway. Hours after the incident, Washington State Patrol announced they would no longer be allowing protests on the highway and would arrest any protesters who attempted to... So all it took was another death and a horrible maiming injury for you guys to realize this was a bad idea. You're supposed to be the ones who recognize the dangers of highway. You let giant chunks of metal hurl down the thing at 60 miles an hour and you let people protest in the middle of that? Are you insane? Are you insane? The graphic video I played before shows a Jaguar driving around vehicles that were parked on Interstate 5 to protect a group of protesters and collide with two people. 
Summer Taylor, a 24-year-old veterinary clinic worker, suffered critical injuries and died Saturday night. Diaz Love, 32, from Portland, Oregon, remains in serious condition at Harborview Hospital. What did you expect to happen? This is another avoidable, preventable death. Preventable by our elected officials. They allowed this to happen. The governor allowed this to happen. Washington State Patrol allowed this to happen. The mayor allowed this to happen. This should never have been allowed to happen. These people should never have been allowed to protest on the highway. They're being allowed. The inmates are running the asylum. That's what's going on. And it's in your city, or it's coming to your city if it isn't already. Don't say I didn't warn you. Coming back, a few more sections of Canary in a Coal Mine after a brief word from our sponsor. Last week I spoke about these anti-Israel BLM rallies that were happening as part of a day of rage across the country. And I went to the one in Seattle. I gave you my summary of that one, how anti-Semitic it really was. And it wasn't about Israel. It was just about flat-out anti-Semitism, no matter how much you couch it. I'll play some of the video for you as part of this segment. And these were across the country. And the more video that comes out, we see just how anti-Semitic they were, that they have switched their messaging from Black Lives Matter, defund the police, abolish the police, to we don't like Jews. We saw it with the NFL this week, with what happened with the Philadelphia Eagles. We saw it, we see it all over the place popping up. Ice Cube, it's just, it's awful. It's awful. P. Diddy is, you know, retweeting things from Farrakhan. I just, absolutely ridiculous. The Day of Rage was organized across the country to protest the annexation of areas in Judea and Samaria, as outlined by the most recent proposed Middle East peace plan from the Trump administration. The day before the protest, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu announced a delay in the annexation. So let me explain what this means. These are areas that when Israel was attacked in 1967, Israel captured when they were attacked. And Jewish settlers have been living there in, and settlers is such a terrible term because they live in cities. These are cities. You think settlements, you think this little huts and things. No, this is not downtown Seattle. These are real cities. They have malls. They have stores. These are real giant cities. This is where they live. This is where people lived after the war. Should we just start giving back pieces of... I don't know, Texas, perhaps, maybe the original 13 colonies, something like that. Anyway, the new peace plan said that the Arabs, the Palestinians, had a certain amount of time to come to the negotiating table, or Israel could go ahead with these annexations, and the U.S. wasn't going to do anything to stop them, because it acknowledges the facts on the ground that the current, that Mahmoud Abbas, who was just supposed to be in power for a few years and is now going on like 12, 14-something years of being in charge of the West Bank and the Palestinian state, um, it just refuses to come to the negotiating table. So what are we talking about anymore? When they say it's acknowledging the facts on the ground, it's acknowledging the fact that they don't want peace with us. They don't want it. We've offered them everything. We've even offered them 90% of what they wanted under the Ehud Barak administration. But they don't want it. Because the sad thing is they don't want peace. And actually, Netanyahu has now been delaying this. We might be blowing the best opportunity we have for peace in the Middle East and annexation of these areas because now everybody's yelling about it. I just want to know, all these people who say war is going to break out, did war break out after they moved the embassy of Jerusalem? No, nothing changed. Anyway, these events were co-sponsored and advertised by many known anti-Israel organizations, including some with ties to terrorist organizations like Hamas and Hezbollah. More unsettling was the participation of organizations representing the Black Lives Matter movement. In an interview about his visit to the Capitol Occupied Protest, the CHOP, with documentary filmmaker Ami Horowitz on my show two weeks ago, Ami discussed the growing amount of anti-Israel and anti-Semitic messaging he was hearing from the Black Lives Matter protests. 
Ami said, there's a significant amount of anti-Semitism that is imbued in the Black Lives Matter movement. I was attacked for being a Jew verbally while I was there in the chop. They kept pointing out that Ben and Jerry's supports Israel because they had that Ben and Jerry's truck that was giving out ice cream. Anti-Israel graffiti and signs and anti-Semitic rhetoric has been recorded and has appeared at Black Lives Matter protests across the country and all over the cities which these protests are in. Black Lives Matter is ostensibly here, Ami continues, to protect black lives, to say, hey, we are being put upon, we are being brutalized by the white folks, the police. The reason I say ostensibly is when you look at their manifesto, they talk a lot about black lives, all things you would expect them to say, but they devote time to only one issue outside of Black Lives Matter, and that is to push the canard, the libel that Israel is committing genocide. They find it so important, they find Israel to be such an obnoxious state to them, their way of being, that they had to find time to point out that the Jewish state to push this lie that Israel is committing genocide. They are not. I've been there many, many times. Go check it out for yourself if you don't believe me as soon as they reopen the airport. Black Lives Matter first published their anti-American and anti-Semitic platform in 2016. According to Carolyn Glick, chief columnist for the Jerusalem Post, Jewish organizations from left to right condemn it for its slanderous accusation against Israel, which it accused of committing genocide and claimed was an apartheid regime that had passed 50 discriminatory laws against Palestinians. Side note. If you're an apartheid regime, they really suck at it because there's Arab members of the Knesset, there's Arab Supreme Court justices, and the people I interviewed at these rallies didn't know that. They don't know anything except for what they've heard in the media. They don't know the most basic things. Continuing from Carolyn Glick, BLM's charter also endorsed and joined the movement to the anti-Semitic boycott, divestment, and sanctions operation against Israel and its American Jewish supporters. Contemporaneous accounts of the American Jewish community's response were published in a number of Jewish publications. Tablet Online Magazine, for instance, knows that the far-left Trua organization, the Anti-Defamation League, and Peter Beinart, by the way, Peter Beinart is one of the most anti-Israel people in Seattle, all condemned the platform, sorry, not in Seattle, in the country, and all condemned the platform. Though the original links no longer function for the original platform, today the section of BLM platform on Israel can be found under the cut military expenses brief. Many of you have said, I can't find it there anymore. It's because you got to dig for it, but it's there. Go to the section that says cut military expenses. You'll find it all right there in that section. During the initial week of protests in the wake of the death of George Floyd, BLM rioters vandalized five synagogues and three Jewish schools. The graffiti on Bethel Synagogue in Fairfax said, F Israel, free Palestine. Bet you didn't hear about that. Most of the Jewish businesses on Fairfax Avenue were looted. Fairfax is the oldest Jewish community in Los Angeles, largely populated today by ultra-Orthodox Jews. So people who are clearly Jewish, not Jews who blend in. These guys stick out. Front Page Magazine detailed the attacks and called it a modern-day pogrom. Allison Rowan Taylor, the former associate director of the American Jewish Congress in L.A. and co-founder of Stand With Us, passed on an account of hearing chants of F the police and kill the Jews. Horowitz continued, all our Jewish friends who are supporting Black Lives Matter, and I support Black Lives. Everyone I know supports Black Lives. But the organization itself, BLM, is deeply problematic when it comes to anti-Semitism, and our Jewish friends who stand with them, and I support them standing with them, need to come to the realization that there are some significant issues with the organization. I completely agree. This is a Marxist organization. Marxism, socialism never end well for the Jews. They always come gunning for us. And there are Jews out protesting with them not realizing or not caring sometimes they say oh well i just put that aside and the rest i get that you need to be calling that out rather than saying i support all this blm delegates have even traveled to nazareth to meet with activists and leadership in the wake of the ferguson protests in 2016 this trip was part of a blm forging relationships with terrorist groups dedicated to the destruction of israel like hamas 
When I asked Horowitz if he has received pushback from his Jewish friends about the anti-Semitism in the BLM movement, he answered, absolutely. If they found the time to discuss Jews in Israel, there is no way I could ignore it. There's just no way. It's an issue I've had with a number of Jews, not only in my friend circle, but Jews I've come across during these protests. They are, for the most part, cognizant of it, but let's be honest, for Jews, Israel does not rank as one of their top ten issues. So they choose to ignore it, unfortunately. Last week, a letter was drafted by far-left Jewish organizations, dozens and dozens of them, encouraging other Jewish organizations to be part of the BLM movement. The letter does not discuss the anti-Semitism in the platform. The letter was ignored or met with resistance by the more observant and Israel-supporting branches of the Jewish community. Rabbi Penny Dunner of the Young Israel of North Beverly Hills wrote, If supporting BLM means collective suicide, you can count me out. Great quote. I know Rabbi Dunner. He was a substitute rabbi in our synagogue for a little while for high holidays. He's a great guy. Many observant Jews are also uncomfortable with the defund abolish the police message currently being pushed in the BLM movement. They feel it leaves them and their institutions and synagogues at risk, which I have spoken about many, many times. Jews say that if the, the police are defunded or abolished in their city, they are out of there. I know people who were thinking of coming to Seattle from Minneapolis, but then saw that they're thinking about the same insanity here and the chop and everything else. And they're like, no way. They're going somewhere else. They're going to red states or they're going to Israel. At least in Israel, socialists don't want to kill them. Thursday in Seattle, Washington, activists from BLM and the Capitol occupied protests, including Antifa, rallied against the Jewish state in front of the West Police Precinct as part of the Day of Rage. They demanded the defunding of the police department, specifically its counterterrorism training with Israel, along with other demands pertaining to the Jewish state. And were not and other things that were not in SPD's power or any Seattle elected official to deliver on. Anti-Semitic rhetoric, including the Jews don't deserve their own state and that the Jews are committing genocide, along with accusations of the Jewish and Zionist agenda conspiracy, was common among the organizers and the participants. A Jewish student who volunteers for an Israel advocacy organization was videoing the event when he had a phone knocked out of his hand and was accosted by participants in the rally because they did not want him recording, even though there were multiple cameras present, as well as people recording with their phones, like me. When asked if the video footage of the anti-Semitic comments and attacks he experienced during the BLM protests across the country were going to make their way into his next documentary, Horowitz coyly responded, I refuse to answer, which means, yes, that's what he's working on next. This is what I dealt with. Here's a little piece of what I saw when I was down there. What would be your end game for this? Do you want to see a two-state solution? Do you want to see a one-state solution? What's your solution to all this? At this point... Much as I would like to see one state, it's not so much what I want as much as what is possible. At this point, a two-state solution is absolutely out of the question. It has been made impossible. And I personally do support the one-state solution. I'm sorry, I didn't hear that last part. I personally support the one-state solution. Does this have anything to do with the Black Lives Matter movement? Well, it's the same aggression, the same racism. As you know, probably the racism in Israel is so rooted in in, in the Jewish agenda, the Zionist agenda of, of having themselves being uh, the chosen, the chosen people, the chosen race over everybody who is uh, native to the Palestinian land, which is the Palestinian people. All right, so is your solution a one-state solution, a two-state solution? What would you one have? State. And what kind one of state? state. And it was always one state until 1948. It's only one state, and it's Palestine, and everybody's welcome. So do the Jews have any right to have a state of their own in the area? No. No. Jewish is a religion. Judaism is a religion. What happened is Zionism came, which is, you know, a few hundred years old. Judaism is 2,000 years old. They were living in Palestine. They were free, just like Muslims, Christians, and everybody else. 
Israel did not teach racism to the U.S. Racism started in the U.S., but Israel has learned from the U.S., and they are both complicit in a really dangerous and brutal system of police and brutality uh, towards black people and Palestinians. And this is a demand to defund the police, to respect indigenous lands, and to uh, you know, stand up for the rights of people that are, you know, being oppressed. Weren't the Jews indigenous to Israel? No, are you kidding? The Jews were not indigenous to Israel. So would you choose a one-state solution, a two-state solution? What would be your no, your I goal? The only real solution would be if they had a socialist economy that united everybody that was equal for Jews and Arabs and Palestinians and dark-skinned Jews, which also get a bad rap in Israel. And uh, I think that eventually you're going to need to have a shared economy based on socialism. Did they have a socialist economy which crashed in the 1980s? No, they never did have one. That there were socialist people who moved there with socialist ideals, like the Kibbutz and that kind of thing. But it was never a socialist economy. So what do you hope to accomplish by protesting at the Seattle Police Department? To basically make the link, the link between the brutality of the police here, the brutality of the police in Israel, to cut, they have a, there's a thing called, uh, they, have, they have an exchange system. U.S. police get trained by Israelis, you know, cops. Isn't that a counter-terrorist program? Well, who's the terrorist here? The terrorists here are the cops. The terrorists are part of in Israel and Palestine is the Israeli government. I mean, terrorism, unprovoked and unleashed brutality, murder, torture with no no accountability, with complete impunity. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. You're welcome. As you can see, very tolerant people. These people definitely want a two-state solution. Every single person I asked said one state solution. And the only state they wanted was a Palestinian state where Jews don't have any rights. That woman talking about socialism who doesn't know that the Israeli economy was socialist and collapsed in the 1980s, these people are ignorant and don't know what's going on. BLM, the organization, is a mask, is a disguise for anti-Semitism and a Marxist socialist agenda. Don't say, I didn't warn you. Look into it yourself. Google it. You will find it. It is easy to find. This is how the stuff always starts. This is how the stuff always ends. We'll see you next time on Canary in a Coal Mine. Just a note, I will be gone on vacation before we come back with season two. So there may not be episodes for about a week or two as I enjoy some much needed time with my family. I hope you are doing the same, but remember to be safe, be healthy, and be friendly to everybody. We need that now more than ever. Have conversations with your neighbors about what's going on. Continue having the discussions because when only one side is talking, you get what you have now going on, and we need to stop that. We need to go back to when we could compromise and find solutions that most of us agree on. We need to get back to rational sanity in this country. Don't say I didn't warn you. We'll see you next time.